societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Today's episode of The Lift, The Dance, was written by Brooke Wara. If you enjoy the story, you can find more of her work at Amazon.com. You can find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you hear me? I am Victoria. I am Victoria. Once upon a time... substance combine, where the reality of story shapes thoughts, where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. The choices you made in the past don't matter, but the choice you make now is the one I hear the sirens. They are close. Too close. I duck behind a shrub, just as footsteps thunder past. (laughs) Fools. They've discovered my crime. I let them. But they won't find me. I turn away from the echoes of their futile search. The sounds of a dozen nearby New Year's Eve soirees. Cheerful voices carried on the wind, unsuspecting of what has transpired just a few blocks away, and of who is lurking nearby. The light from the street lamps fades further away with each lunging step I take into the woods. I'm not in a hurry, but it's best not to waste time either. I had carefully marked my path to the bunker, so I could find it in the dark if I needed to. I pull the reflective tape off the branches and bramble and stone as I make my way through the forest. There are enough provisions there to get me through the next several weeks while I figure out my next step. I finger the small pistol inside my pocket. 
just in case. Best not to think of that now. No. Think of their wretched, bloated faces instead. Their smug smiles twisting and hardening like drying wax. I've lost track of my markers and my daydreaming. Stumbling through the dark, I turn to retrace my steps and fall. When I catch myself, it's against the cobbled street instead of the muck of the forest floor. Confused, I stand, searching myself for injuries. A building looms ahead. It is rotting and dilapidated. I spin around searching, but the forest is gone, or at least it can't be seen through the thickness of the fog. I only tripped and fell, but I feel a sense of having been asleep for a long time and just having woken up. Is it possible I had missed this abandoned place on my previous excursions through these woods? I doubt it, but yet here it is, rising up into the mist. A flickering light in the doorway. There's someone there. I can't quite make them out through the dense fog. A laugh, almost metallic sounding. It's a little girl. She is dressed in a rain slicker and holding a music box that has an eerie glow. Seeing me staring at it, she shoves it under and inside her raincoat. (laughs) You took a tumble, Tommy, she says, and then in a sing-song voice. Tommy, tumble, Tommy, tumble. How does she know this name that has followed me since childhood like an embarrassing birthmark on my face? The leg that was sick from birth and never grew quite right. Out of all the things they called me, it was the least foul, but somehow the one that stuck. For a moment, it is not this little girl's voice, but the voices of a dozen children in grade school. For a moment, I'm not standing on this eerie cobbled street, but on a muddy playground surrounded by cruel children. Tommy tumble, gonna stumble. She continues. Stop! I shout, and she stops. She's not taken aback by my outburst, the childish cracking of my voice. Rather, she seems amused. Victoria. I know her name is Victoria. I don't know how I know, I just do. There's a buzzing in my head. I pound my ears with my fists, and it stops. Better come inside. It looks like rain, she says, just as an icy downpour begins. There's a faint awareness that it's strange she predicted this weather, and also knew my name upon sight. But I brush it aside. Somehow, these things don't seem to matter. Maybe I am dreaming, I think, as I walk toward her. Perhaps I hit my head when I tripped in the forest. I follow her into the building. Inside, 
marble floors and tapestried walls as far as the eye can see. It's a grandiose sight, or at least it would be, except for the putrid water pulling in the sinking floor and the foliage bursting forth through the cracks, growing all over everything. Victoria skips ahead of me, splashing down in the stagnant slicks and watching the black water spray the walls. I look down to see something that is almost, but not quite a frog, crawling across my shoe. I kick the slimy thing away, and it makes an offended burp before diving into a puddle of sludge. You shouldn't be so quick to be so cruel, Tommy, Victoria calls to me. She is standing about 20 yards away, playing with her music box again. I have a distinct feeling that she is purposefully keeping the distance between us. She knows my name. Does she know what I've done? What I've just fled from? She has taken off the hood of her raincoat. Her head is an impossible nest of perfectly spiraled blonde ringlets held in pigtails with old-fashioned silk ribbons. There's something off-putting about the style of those ribbons, the lace collar peeking out from underneath her jacket. Kids these days with their cartoon character t-shirts and light-up sneakers. I think she must not have any friends dressing that way. A small part of me feels a camaraderie with her then, but it is fleeting and gone almost as soon as I notice it. What is this place? I ask. What do you think it is, Tommy? She answers my question with a question. Odd thing for a little girl to do, I think absently. I shrug. A place no one cares about anymore, apparently. She balks. That's not so. Before we can argue about it, she skips off around a corner. What meager light there had been in this room must have been coming from her creepy little music box when I am suddenly standing ankle deep in sewage in the darkness. Wait! I call and chase after her, slipping around the corner I'm sure she is hiding behind. Her voice is coming from somewhere ahead, but I'm not sure where. Again, I have the impression of something metallic, an echo. Inside her voice, an echo. I pound my fist to my ears again. Stop! I yell to the blackness. But she doesn't this time. Her giggle floats overhead. My foot slides from underneath me on the wet floor and I catch myself before I fall by grasping at the vines on the walls. Don't take a tumble, Tommy. But it isn't malicious. Only playful this time. I think. I am still regaining my footing when nearby a door lurches open and suddenly there is light. It is an elevator and Victoria is standing inside it. She looks at me with her eyes half closed. I think again that she is wary of me. They always say children can sense things far better than adults. You must come upstairs, Tommy. There is a hesitation in her words. She does not wish to be alone with me inside the lift. They deserved it, you know, I say, 
realizing this is a poor consolation to her. I try again. You don't need to worry about me. She regards me with caution, but steps aside, an invitation to join her on the lift. I step inside. The once red velvet-covered walls are mildewing, moldering, and falling apart in shreds. Half the buttons on the panel are missing. The mirrors are cracked. As the doors push closed, I have a fleeting thought that this old elevator might be a death trap. No matter. I'm only dreaming anyway, I remind myself. Looking at Victoria this closely, the translucence of her pallor, the too-perfect coil of her blonde curls, I think she must be a figment, something I dreamed up. Face from an old cereal box, maybe. Character from a Sunday comic strip. As if she has noticed me studying her and wishes to distract me, she produces the music box again. A green light glows from within it. The light is palpable. A fog swimming around the trinket. She spins the crank and the thing shudders in her hands. But no music is produced. Broken, eh? I ask and reach for it, as if to help repair it. Perhaps it's just a loose piece. No. She pulls it close to her and shoves it back into her coat as if she sensed my true intent to smash it to smithereens the second I laid hands on it. Somehow, that thing makes me uneasy with its eerie glow and the faint sounds of whispers emanating from inside. The lift shutters abruptly to a stop, the lights flickering, our images in the mirrors distorting and jerking as we are tossed about. The doors creak open, and Victoria gestures for me to exit first. Maybe she doesn't wish to have her back to me. I mean her no ill will, but I shrug. Smart girl, anyway. As I step through the gate of the lift, I feel her small foot lodge into the small of my back and shove hard, and then I am tumbling into the darkness. The great slams shut, and Victoria cries out, You are a bad man, Tommy. I laugh a little and brush my knees off as I stand up. It is pitch black, and I can no longer see the light of the lift. I spin around. I do not even know from which direction I came any longer. The blackness is so very thick here. I know what you did, Tommy. Victoria's disembodied voice accuses. You must say you're sorry, or you will be here forever. Sorry? I shout. For what? They deserved it. The party. Elizabeth's New Year's Eve party. Elizabeth and all her snotty A-list friends. The same group of people I'd grown up with. I'd spent years on the fringes of their little clique. Always on the outside. Always not quite part of things. It had started on the playground at school, with their little club at the top of the jungle gym. They would tell each other secrets and peek at me sideways between their fingers. I had foolishly believed I was the lookout relegated to the bottom rung. 
For ages, I had sat behind them in class, stared at the back of Elizabeth's fine, pale neck, and simultaneously wanted to stroke its soft, pretty skin and snap it in half. One year in high school, I had even been deluded enough to ask a couple of the girls to the spring dance. Their rejections had been pitying, said behind delicate hands held over mouths, sly eyes watching me, tittering voices declining my advances. They were always laughing at me, at my limp, my impotency, my inability to keep up with them or join their games. Their laughter had ended with the dance. Come to my party, the sweet pink invitation had said with a burst of glitter as I opened it. When you hear in the news about someone who was pushed to the edge, you hear about some significant event that took place beforehand. A cheating spouse, unrequited love, a rejection. I read in the weekend paper once about a man who killed his own brother for taking the last cold beer. For me, it was the quiet whisper of a cheap glitter falling through my fingertips as I held the party invitation crushed in my hand. That's when I formed the plan. The strychnine had been easy enough to come by. I did maintenance on the football field at the college, and the custodian kept a slew of poison for the gophers around. I wasn't concerned with it being traced back to my job and then to me. I had prepared for that. I had known I would be the primary suspect. I just had not cared. I had spent a few weeks digging out an old fort in the woods, lining its walls with canned food and books, a place to stay alive while they looked for me up and down the streets of our devastated little town. The pistol had come from my mother's bedside drawer. She would tearfully tell the officers I had taken it, proclaim that I was a good boy deep down, and beg them not to hurt me, hurt Tommy. I would keep the pistol by my side if I decided prison was something I couldn't bear after all when they found me. And I knew they would find me. Delivering the poison had been no difficult task either. I had shown up to the party unfashionably late, as they say, and everybody had already gotten themselves fairly intoxicated by then. I dumped the poison into a fresh bowl of punch I had offered to make, the alcohol masking the bitter taste. No one had given it a second thought when I began pouring all their drinks and handing them out. I had always been their servant. Most of them had gotten sick at the same time. Some of them had fallen like so many dominoes, all of them grasping at their faces and looking at each other with wild eyes that seemed to implore, What is happening to us? How could this be happening to us? Not one of them ever turned their eyes to me. The few who hadn't fallen rushed to the ones who had, trying in vain to keep them from convulsing, screaming for someone to get a doctor. It had been easy enough to take the phone from Michael's hand as he began to seize before he could even dial emergency services. Within minutes, there was nothing to be done for any of them. I had casually walked to the record player and turned up whatever grotesque pop song had been playing 
I stood in the center of the room and watched their backs arch, some of them only touching the floor with the tips of their toes and heads. (laughs) They were like acrobats in their postures, posing gracefully while the drum roll built, twisting and contorting midair while the audience gasped. Well, it would have been graceful if not for the convulsions, but I paid it no mind. I admired the tableau of my work before me. A dozen or more partygoers in taffeta and silk ties and tiaras jerking in unison as the toxins coursed through them. The music drowned out all the sounds of their dying. (laughs) I had danced, held my arms out to an invisible partner, and waltzed between the bodies of my childhood friends as they expired one by one from the exhaustion of the poison. It had taken some time, but not as long as I had hoped. When they had all died, I picked up my coat off the crushed velvet sofa, found Elizabeth in a pool of her own vomit, kissed her on the cheek goodnight, thanked her for a lovely time, and left. Now, I stood in this blackest of black rooms in a run-down building, somehow held here by the power of a single little girl. And her knowing what I had done horrified me. But I could not say I was sorry, as she asked me repeatedly to do. I understood now that if I had remorse, if I could somehow make this right, I would be allowed to leave. And if I could not, well, I would be here forever. And she did not wish to be here in this place with me. I called to her through the darkness. Have you been here long, Victoria? Her answer takes so long and is so faint, I almost start to think that she has finally left me here. I have been here. I have been here all my life, she says. There is a sadness in her words. Is she remembering her mother and father, friends, Or is she sad because she can no longer remember anyone at all? Has she always been alone? I don't think so. There is something else here in this place. I haven't seen it, but I have heard a distant hum. The presence of some entity, either watching or slumbering elsewhere in the building. You really cannot say you are sorry, Tommy. She asks me one final time. I think of Elizabeth's lifeless eyes, the coldness of her cheek against my lips as I kissed her goodbye. I think of the death waltz I danced through all their twisting bodies. I think of their smug faces on the playground, looking down at me from their perches on the highest tiers of the jungle gym. For some reason, I even think of their perfect teeth as they open their mouths to call me that wretched name. I shake my head where the buzzing has started again. And that hum, that beastly hum from the darkness somewhere. I pound a fist to my ear, that old trick that can't help me this time. No, Victoria, I cannot, I say. And while I am not sorry for what I have done, I find myself remorseful that I have to tell her so. I sense her resolve in the dark. The doors creak and slide open. Victoria stands before me, some feet away, 
and the open door of the lift. The light from inside shining around her frame, making it impossible to see the features of her face. Something I am suddenly grateful for. Sensing at last that she is not just the waif of a ghost child I had supposed her to be all this time, but something more. The music box is in her hands then, shaking and shuddering, a song spilling out of it into the blackness around me. The humming is louder, and there is a rushing sound, as if something were on its way. Something large and terrible. The music box's ghostly light grows hotter now. I am terrified of its green glow as it becomes a blinding brightness. But I find that I cannot look away. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lift. Today's episode featured a story by Brooke Wara, The Dance. If you'd like more information on Brooke and her work, please check out the show notes to this episode and follow her on Twitter at Brooke Wara. Artwork for today's show was created by Alex Murd. If you'd like more information on Alex and her work, please visit crazedpixel.com and follow her on Twitter at crazedpixel. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and coming soon to iTunes and Google Play. This show's feed is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The Lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams, wetalkofdreams.com. Music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E5. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.